Hey all, welcome to this very special episode of Real Life Pharmacology. Before we get to that, please go sign up. Real Life Pharmacology will get you emails out uh, when we've got new podcasts available. We can also get you a free PDF on the top 200 drugs. It's a 31-page PDF, no-brainer for you to have there. Also, this episode is sponsored by MedEd101.com, so go check out their resources there for pharmacists, pharmacy students, uh, med students, nursing students, uh, all the links there at MedEd101.com slash store. Uh, go to directly support uh, this podcast and what we're doing to try to uh, help educate healthcare professionals. So I hope you enjoyed this episode and uh, definitely feel free to reach out to me, Eric Christensen, MedEducation101 at gmail.com if you have any comments, questions, or concerns. Here's the episode. All right. Well, I'm excited today. I've got uh, Beth Zier with me. So this will be a unique episode of the Real Life Pharmacology podcast. And uh, she's been gracious to give up her time to uh, answer a few questions regarding um, asthma and sharing her experience. So uh, thanks for for being with us, Uh, Beth. If you want to give us a little bit of background on yourself, that'd be greatly appreciated. Sure. Thank you for having me. First of all, um, I got to work with Eric many, many years ago when I was a student. Uh, So this is kind of fun coming full circle here. Currently, I work as an assistant clinical professor at the University of Arizona. I teach um, various pharmacotherapy classes for students. I also teach the self-care course. And um, I'm almost afraid to say that I teach asthma because that means I should do a good job here today. But (laughs) that is what I teach our students. Uh, I also have a clinical position. I've worked in Ampere for the past about 14 years. Right now, my clinical position is all telehealth, and I focus on mostly diabetes, hypertension, lipids, kind of the common things. Perfect. Sounds good. Well, we'll uh, get right into it. That's what I I like to do. So um, I really enjoy sharing some of the things from the real world. I know a lot of students benefit from that, uh, learning what actually happens out there in practice. So Um, From your perspective and your practice, uh, what are some of the most common questions surrounding pharmacotherapy and medications that you get uh, from patients and then kind of working your thought process through on on how you address those and tackle some of those? Yeah, I think asthma is one of those disease states where it's not as obvious why you should be treating it every day. Kind of like hypertension, like taking a medication for hypertension every day, a patient might not feel different when they take it. So same with asthma. If I have patients who aren't having difficulty breathing, it's harder for them to understand why they need to still be taking their maintenance inhaler every day. So that's probably one of the most common mistakes I see is that patients kind of tend to fall off using their maintenance inhalers when they're having a period of good breathing. Uh, So the way we address that is really just patient education and um, making sure that patients understand the reason why it's important to always be treating your asthma. So talking about that underlying inflammation component, trying to stay on top of that and talking about how even in mild asthma, you know, you can have serious consequences from any exacerbations. Um, patients seem to understand the idea of remodeling when you talk about how anytime you have an exacerbation, it can lead to scarring in the lungs. It's kind of a good way to talk about it for patients. So anytime you do that, then you, you make your baseline breathing a little bit worse. So that's the reason why they need to stay on those maintenance inhalers. So I'd say understanding the reason why you got to keep treating it even when you're feeling good is one of those most common questions from patients. Yeah. And that, and that definitely 
you know, ties in a little bit, I think, with, with common mistakes that, that patients make. That's certainly something that, that I have definitely seen. Um, in, in your experience, do you feel that that is more maybe a cost issue of the medication as a whole? Because obviously that's, that's a, a major issue for sure. Oh, I mean, you can't talk about asthma drug therapy without talking about cost. And you're right. Sometimes it is kind of a value judgment of, you know, I'm feeling good. So I'm going to make this one month inhaler last two or three months if I can. Um, And that, I mean, that brings up a good point about really meeting patients where they're at and trying to find the most cost effective meds when you can and remembering to step down therapy when you can. So maybe a patient does have an opportunity to use their inhaler less if they've been well controlled. Yeah, exactly. Is does that go through your thought process if you have a patient that comes to you and said, you know, I'm doing okay. I haven't really taken my inhaler for two or three months. I mean, is is that in your thought process of like, okay, do they really need it? <laughs> oh yeah. I mean, and that's every time I'm talking with students and we're talking about how we're taking care of asthma, it's not only ramping patients up on medications, but it's evaluating them every time they come in. If they've been well controlled after three months, guideline directed therapy is to step them down or to attempt to step down. And I think that's something that um, practitioners miss at times. And it's it can it can be one of those areas where meds get added and added and added and never taken away, even when yeah. the patient could be appropriate for that. Yeah, and even even my thought process with with geriatrics, like I. I don't think about deprescribing as much with asthma. And I, I think that's a, a great point. I mean, three three months isn't that long of a time frame, you know, yep. to think about uh that de-escalation. So that's definitely something I could I could probably be more diligent about in in addressing with with patients. So I uh, know that's a, a great point. So uh, any other uh, common mistakes uh, regarding maybe specific inhalers or medications or or anything else that way you could think of? Oh, for patients, it's always administration. You can never underestimate how many times and how many different ways you need to talk about the administration of of different inhalers. And not only do is is it difficult to use, say, um, an MDI or a metered dose inhaler, but then you most patients likely have two different kinds of inhalers. So they have an MDI and a DPI, a dry powder inhaler, and those require totally different techniques to use. And if that's never been explained in a way that a patient can understand, then they're not going to use those inhalers, right? Those medications aren't going to the lungs where they need them. They're not going to be effective. Um, Reviewing administration, not just on the first time, but literally every single time that you talk with a patient about their asthma medications. Yep. Yep. And I've, I've definitely uh, felt that as well. I probably deal with COPD a little bit more in, in the things that I do in, in my practice, but my first thought when somebody is is failing is not doing well on a therapy is like, hey, you know, go back, review, like, are they actually taking it the way they're supposed to be? So, oh yeah, um, I could not agree with you more. Yeah, yep, it, exactly. So, if you have somebody failing, um, go back, start from the beginning, make sure that they can probably a afford their medications, like we talked about before already, and then b mm-hmm. um, making sure they they actually know know how to use them too. Um, insurance formulary stuff. Do you see patients juggling a lot? Does it happen on an annual basis when they change coverage or what's, what's your practice like in that situation? Yeah, I'll say I am 
pretty spoiled in my position right now where I deal with a set number of insurance formularies. So very comfortable with the formularies. We know what to prescribe that's going to get covered, kind of know the tricks for our patient group of what to get covered. But what you mentioned about when formularies change over every year, that's the biggest issue is that we often see different contracts happening. So maybe they were contracted with this drug company and now with a different. So we have to switch all the inhalers over to the new drug company. Right. Um, it's frustrating. So all the new con- uh, covered meds. And again, it's not just switching the inhalers. It's whole new techniques because it's the new devices yeah. as well. Yeah. And that's totally something I think that that flies under the radar too, where it's like, oh yeah, okay, we can get through that. We can switch them to a new one, you know, or whatever. But like, who's doing the education piece and making sure um, that, that gets done. So definitely a, a big, big challenge there. Uh, how about common mistakes, um, you know, made by young pharmacists, young nurse practitioners, PAs, physicians, um, anything that jumps out at you there as far as the asthma care? You know, I might've covered most of it already, but I really do think, and maybe this is just my bias, but I think educating patients, we have to spend more time doing it. They need to understand not only like how to use their meds, but why, they need to use their medications. Um, most of the time when patients are what we call like non-adherent, it's not because they don't want to be healthy. It's because they don't understand that what they're doing isn't the best for them. So for example, like not taking your maintenance inhaler, they might not understand why that's important for them to do. So new practitioners, um, any practitioners actually just need to make sure that their patients um, understand so that they buy into why treating their um, asthma the way that we're recommending is important. Um, And then like another little caveat on that is making sure they understand the difference between maintenance and reliever inhalers. Um, Cause it seems obvious to us cause we're talking about them all the time, but knowing that, yeah, taking, taking this Advair is not going to help my breath, my breathing right away. Like this albuterol is, um, but letting them understand why that is and why they're both important. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, Let's uh, switch gears a, a little bit. Let's talk um, a little bit about about medications. Um, you know, I've I've been asked the question regarding drug interactions and what do we need to worry about if it's inhaled med, anything like that. Um, the beta blocker one has is one that that I've had students ask me quite a bit. Um, what's your thought process? Do you worry much about those inhaled meds and any drug interactions? Uh, anything there relevant that that you think is important? And if a patient is doing well on their current therapy and they're on, say, an interacting like beta blocker beta and with a beta agonist, um, I don't usually spend too much time changing medications if they're well controlled. If we do have a patient who's um, is having concerns, then that might be a time when I'd look at changing medication to try to avoid the interaction. But I do not see it commonly in practice where it's actually clinically significant significant for my patients. Um, yeah. The, that's the other thing I was going to think if I, sorry, I lost my train of thought. That, that's okay. No, no worries. And, and I know like you, you see it on interaction programs once in a while where it's like, you know, this inhaled steroid goes through SIP 3A4 and, you know, it's like how clinically oh, significant. that's what I was going to say. Yeah. You always have to think about how much absorption are you getting from medications. So interactions, um, sometimes they just, they're talking about systemically and inha- uh, systemically absorbed medications. And you got to look at how much of that inhaled med is getting systemically absorbed. What kind of realistic interaction would we expect? Yep. Yep. Exactly. Good, good points there. Um, 
Ad- adverse effects. Uh, what what do you see in your your practice regarding uh, obviously inhaled corticosteroids or the the mainstay maintenance therapy there? Uh, but then we can add in beta agonists. Um, do you see more or less challenges with either of those meds and causing maybe some of the systemic adverse effects? So probably the biggest one I talk about with my patients is more with the pediatric group and the inhaled corticosteroids with concerns for growth. Sure. Because um, there is risk of, um, of it's I'm trying to remember what the studies were saying, but it's fairly small, but there is a risk of decreased height when we're using inhaled corticosteroids chronically in our pediatric population. But there is more data out now that shows that we usually do recover that growth as the drugs are stopped. So say as our pediatric patients may grow out and not need those inhaled corticosteroids anymore, um, almost all of that growth is recovered. So there's long-term data showing that it's not a long-term effect for most patients. Um, so talking about that with parents who may be concerned about um, some of those side effects can be important. Um, other side effects like bone density, things like that, not as concerning just because we know that there's less systemic absorption. It's not the same as taking an oral inhaled corticosteroid. Um, I know that thrush gets talked a lot about or oral candidiasis with use of steroids. That one's kind of controversial with some of the more recent data. Um, you can always recommend that a patient do like the rinse and spit after they use a steroid inhaler. Um, but there's been studies that have shown that it makes no difference on the incidence of thrush. So I usually, I can tell patients about that, but if they don't feel like doing it, I'm not too worried about it. Um, other side effects, beta agonists, we always talk about tachycardias. Um, if I have a patient who's coming in and they're having like some some anxiety tachycardia associated with their beta agonists, the first thing I'm going to do is ask them how often they're using it because it may be more of an overuse thing than, um, than just a plain side effect from the drug. Yeah. Yep. Exactly. Exactly. Especially the the cheaper beta agonists, they potentially yes. would be more oh, likely to overuse. Or our OTC. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Definitely. Definitely. So, no, that's uh, that's a, a good good summary there. Um, you ever see any uh, you know excessive shakiness and stuff, or is it you know mostly increased heart like rate? Tremor. Yeah. You know, I haven't seen too much in practice okay. with patients that are using it appropriately. Gotcha. Yep. Yeah. Sounds good. Um, all right. What's, what's new guidelines, medications. I know we had the, uh, uh, Gina updates uh, a little while back. Um, how, yeah, how has that impacted your practice? So there's been like a fundamental shift in the way that we treat asthma with Gina updating in 2019 and then NH. HLBI followed suit in around, I think there it was 2021 when they updated their um, medication use guidelines. Basically, there's a push to have a inhaled corticosteroids used in mild asthma. So, and it can be part of a daily regimen or even PRN. So we can have our mild asthma patients who used to be treated in ju- with just PRN Saba products treated with PRN combo ICSI Saba. Um, and then the reason behind that is that they there's data showing that even if you have mild asthma and you're having a, you have a rare risk of exacerbation, when you do have that exacerbation, you have just as much chance of having like a very severe reaction ending up hospitalized than our patients who have more of that moderate or severe asthma. And what can prevent that is having some of that anti-inflammatory drug on board. 
So again, push for earlier use of anti-inflammatory medications, specifically the ICSIs. Um, it's a slow curve to change practice because this yeah. is a big change. Yeah, that's um, definitely definitely what I was going to ask you is, is are I know I've seen it some, but I've also seen some patients just have their PRNL-butyrol and that's what they do too. Yeah, so I know I, I didn't mention this to you before, but I'm working on a project right now with a pharmacy resident where we did a research on okay. our system group looking to see what has there been a change since the, the guidelines have been um, updated. And the in the health system that I work work with, we still find about um, two thirds to 75% of patients are on the updated guidelines of having okay. an inhaled corticosteroid on board. So I would say it is starting to shift yeah. where we yeah. are. Um, but it's a big opportunity for pharmacists, especially pharmacists in the community setting. If yeah. you see a patient filling just a Saba inhaler, kind of talking to them about, you know, have you been back into your provider? Have you talked to them about the updates and asthma treatment? I think that's a good opportunity for pharmacists yep. to be involved. Yep, for sure. Do you um, uh, have, uh, are, are you comfortable leaving them with the albuterol and just adding on the inhaled corticosteroid or are you trying to get them to, you know, the budesonide formoterol you know, product, for example, where it's like, okay, it's just one inhaler to worry about, or are you yeah. just kind of seeing where they're at and then going from there? So the guidelines, Gina really uh, focuses on the Symbacort or the um, budesonide from Motorol product and the NHLBI gives more leeway. They just want an ICSI involved. Yeah. Um, if you can get a patient to just have one inhaler, that makes so much more sense, right? They have one yeah. device that they have to use. They can use it as needed and as their maintenance, or they can just use it as they're as needed. So if I have insurance covered for um, a budesonide from Motorol product, I'd prefer that. Yeah. But yeah. the other option is if you have a patient who already has both those inhale, like both an ICSI and a Saba, then just kind of teaching them to use them together can be yeah. good too. Yep. Yeah, exactly. So I, I am actually kind of su surprised that you said two thirds to three quarters are, are on. So were we, new, to be honest. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Which, which is great. I mean, it, it definitely, you know, tells you that part that of people... it, yeah, part of it in the real world world might be that we don't have enough patients that are getting classified correctly with mild asthma. Okay. Gotcha. Or those patients are, are getting coded as like uh, respiratory distress as opposed to mild asthma. There's, yeah. there's lots of system issues there about, you know, how you get counted and yep. quality measures, but. Yep. E exactly. Exactly. So um, let's talk devices a, a little bit. Um, you know, when are you kind of looking for spacers? Are there devices that, you know, you would prefer to see used over others? Some are that are easier for patients, some that are harder um, yeah, give us a little rundown on, on devices and, and where the role is there in, in asthma care. Uh, sure. My favorite device is the one that's covered the best for the patient and that they can <laughs> afford to use. But yeah. then after that, like if I'm in the real world or like in the imaginary world where I can pick any device, the Ellipta devices are so easy to okay. use for people. Cool. Uh, if you have arthritis, they're larger, you can, um, they're easier to manipulate. There's really just open the slot, breathe in the medication. There's very few mistakes you can make with those. Um, I think the only one is really covering the vent with your finger, but that's actually kind of hard to do when you're holding it. 
Um, So if I have an option, I use those. I also, when I'm thinking about devices, if there is an option to have a patient all on the same type of device, so either like all elliptas or say all dry powder inhalers or all meter dose inhalers, I try to do that. And it is possible now because our SABAs are available in dry powder and meter dose inhaler devices. So you can get someone on a reliever and maintenance med where they only have to learn one inhalation technique. Um, So I think that's important for patients. It's less, it's less things they have to think about when they're trying to use their meds. Um, And then I think you asked about spacers and space. Anytime you have an AI, spacers have been shown to improve drug deposition into the lungs. So if a patient is open to using it, um, a spacer is always a good addition uh, they're just not as convenient. So I'd rather have the patient take the med than not take it at all because they refuse a spacer. But um, yeah. talking about spacers is important. Yeah, exactly. And then, you know, kind of um, s- summing up a little bit, are, are you seeing any of the uh, oral medications utilized uh, much anymore? Montelukast, you know, things things like that? I see Montelukast. I don't see much else in my practice. Uh, but again, if I have patients who are in the more severe category, Category, they're usually referred to a pulmonologist. So it might just be right. where I'm yep. working. Yep, exactly. So yeah, a lot of, definitely a lot of new specialized biologics out and, and things of that nature too, that I, I see that uh, keep, keep coming, which is, which is good. Definitely. So uh, more tools for, for people to use there. So uh, with that, I'm not going to take uh, any more of your time. Any last uh, comments, things you want to emphasize, and then maybe how uh, people can contact you if they've got uh, questions regarding uh, ambulatory care practice and things of that nature. Yeah, I mean, uh, my comment on any drug talk is always that pharmacists can make a huge difference with patients because <laughs> we've got a lot of education that we can, um, you know, impart to patients and help them understand why we want them to use their medications the way that they should and why that helps them be healthy. So don't underestimate the power that pharmacists have in any setting, including our community setting. Um, and then if, as far as contacting me, you can uh, email me at zier uh, at arizona.edu. Awesome. So z-e-r at arizona.edu. Awesome. Thanks. Thanks so much, Beth, for uh, being with us. Hopefully this was a uh, nice new uh, little format for the Real Life Pharmacology podcast. And uh, hopefully you guys picked up some uh, practice pearls today. So thanks again, Beth. We appreciate it. Thank you. Hey all, I hope you enjoyed this episode today. Please support the sponsor if you're looking for NAPLEX study materials, ambulatory care, pharmacotherapy, geriatrics, BCM, TMS exam study materials. Uh, go check out meded101.com slash store. Support the sponsor and help keep this podcast free and educational for all to enjoy. If you're another student, we've got all sorts of different books, crossword puzzle books, uh, case study books, drug interaction books, uh, all those links you can find at meded101.com slash store. Thanks for supporting the sponsor. Uh, Please do us a huge favor. Give us a rating review on iTunes or wherever you're listening as well. Thanks so much and I hope you have a great rest of your day.